The following lecture was delivered at the 17th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yechiel Krish now presents his lecture, Does It All Revolve Around Us? This is one of the trickiest, one of the stickiest issues. We're going to talk about the fact that according to the Torah perspective, in a lot of ways at least, according to the Torah perspective, the earth is at the center of the solar system and the sun moves around it. Yeah, we're doing that one today, that one. You may be familiar with the fact that scientists do not like this idea very much. If you go down to the lobby right now and you announce, you clop the table and you say, I hereby announce that the earth is at the center of the solar system and the sun moves around it, you will upset them, to say the least. This is one of the fastest ways to upset people. So this is a Torah perspective. It's something we're going to talk about, something we are going to reconcile, but this is the problem at least we're going to deal with. I want to give the same introduction that I've given to all of these lectures, which is the most important thing is to live as a Jew. That's why you were born. That's why you're here. That's why you live where you do at this time. God has put you as a Jew in this place to live and act as a Jew. That means learning Torah and doing mitzvahs to the best of your ability. That also means that if science is getting in the way of your ability to do that, you need to get it out of the way. Whatever gets science out of the way of you doing your job is good. So I'm going to present some ideas here today that I don't agree with. Ways to reconcile science and Torah that I think are not terribly effective. If you find one and you like it, take it and use it to get yourself out of your own way so that you can perform mitzvahs and learn Torah in a way of peace. That's the idea. You understand? We've talked about this already, but I think it's important to keep repeating. I'm going to champion one idea, but if you find an idea that works, take it and run with it. The priority here is to free you to be the best Jew you can be, not necessarily to give you the best answer I can give you. However, I will also give you the best answer that I can give you. In 1975, true story, we have a lot of documents to demonstrate this true story. In 1975, there was a man who went to visit a Chabad rabbi. This Chabad rabbi, this man, had a long conversation. The man was a modern fellow. He was somebody who wasn't ready to take on Judaism just because you tell him to. And he wasn't interested in this mystical stuff about beards that we were just talking about. This was not what he loved. He wanted to know intellectually why he should be a better Jew, why he should invest more in Judaism. And along the course of the conversation, the rabbi was trying to encourage him to adopt a Torah lifestyle, to increase in his Torah and mitzvahs. And this person said, my big problem with the Torah is you guys believe in some weird stuff. And the rabbi said, what? No, we don't. <laughs> now, no, we don't. We have talking bushes. We have splitting seas. We have weird stuff. I don't know what he was talking about. We have weird stuff. But this guy said, no, you believe in weird stuff. I don't associate with weirdos. That's something nobody here can relate to. But, you know, this guy didn't associate with weirdos. I'm not going to hang out with you backward people. The rabbi said, no, 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 give me an example. Give me an example of what's weird about Judaism. He says, you guys think that the earth is at the center and the sun moves around the earth, something that is called geocentrism. That is, geo means earth, centrism right in the middle. The earth, boom, in the middle. He said, nobody thinks that. You're totally wrong. It's irrational. We know that the sun is in the middle, heliocentrism, and that the, everything else, the earth, moves around the sun. So he told this rabbi, you're out of your minds. I'm not joining a religion with ridiculous people. You tell me you don't believe that, we're in. The rabbi said, no can do. I do believe it. I think geocentrism is correct. 
This man says back to this Chabad rabbi, you think something so ridiculous, you know what? You are brainwashed and out of your mind. You have a Rebbe. You have the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Crown Heights. He's a scientist, and he is. The Rebbe had a classical training in physics from the University of Berlin, from the Sorbonne. He worked for the US Navy. He worked in the naval shipyards doing, I believe, communication systems on ships. A real scientist. He does not believe this. You are brainwashed. You're a nutcase. But if you were to call up your Rebbe, he would tell you to back off and trust the science. And this Chabad rabbi, brave man, said, nope, I know what my Rebbe thinks. He thinks, like I think, that the earth is at the center of everything. So they made a bet. They made a wager. And they put it in writing, and we have the letter. The, wa the wager was, this individual said that he would start keeping Shabbos, putting on tefillin every day, and keeping the laws of family purity, and that he would also encourage all of his friends to do it too, if he got in writing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a bona fide scientist, that he thinks the earth is at the center and the sun moves around it. But... Since he is completely sure that the Rebbe would never say something so ridiculous, he is certain that he won't be hearing anything more from this Chabad rabbi. Up on your screen is an excerpt of the letter that he sent his rabbi, the deal that he put in writing, which, by the way, this Chabad rabbi forwarded to the Rebbe. So these are lines the Rebbe, unfortunately, had to receive in his mailbox. I must tell you that I feel a deep personal hurt when people such as you make such asinine, ridiculous statements and then hide your abysmal ignorance behind the facade of Torah. Wow. That's an email. <laughs> I've, I've, I've gotten messages like that after these talks. <laughs> Don't you realize you can still be believers and not live 500 years behind the times? This person writes this to the Rebbe. This person writes this to the Chabad Rabbi who sends it to the Rebbe. But this arrives in the Rebbe's inbox. Give or take, you know, inbox. <laughs> in 1975. What did the Rebbe answer? How about a cliffhanger? I like cliffhangers. Let's not talk about it. We're going to talk about it later. Hang on to that thought. Hold that thought. We'll get back to it. <laughs> I want to talk about astronomy and the Torah in general. Astronomy is the great hobby of the Talmudic scientists, that's for sure. That was the science of the day. It was the most impressive science of the day. That's what scientists were interested in, and also what the Talmud was interested in. Rabbis, who always sought logic, were interested in the logic of the day, which was astronomy. But it runs a lot deeper than that. As we saw in our first class, but I want to mention it again, Tractate Shabbos 75a says, How do we know that it is a mitzvah? Not a good wisdom, not something interesting, not edifying, not a good piece of secular knowledge. How do I know it's a mitzvah to study astronomy? A mitzvah. And the Talmud says, We have a responsibility to guard the wisdom of the nations. What wisdom of the nations do we have to guard? We're guardians of the Torah. We're guardians of the tradition. But the Torah also says we are to guard the chachma and the bina, the wisdom and the understanding that is in the eyes of the other nations. What is wisdom of the nations that a Jew has to guard? I'm not responsible for a calculus. What exactly am I responsible for? What wisdom of the nations? What secular study? I want to know what major the Jewish people have to endow. What chair do we have to endow at every university? What is our job to watch? And the answer is astronomy. That is the that is the which is their wisdom that we are commanded to guard. That is calculating the cycles, calculating the constellations. That's our job to guard. Now, whether this is literally a mitzvah or not is subject to dispute. The smag, one of the major codifiers of mitzvahs, makes this one of the 613, which means that if somebody did all the mitzvahs and they get up to heaven after 120 and they don't know astronomy, God says, you're one short, 612. Good try. That's the smag. Most commentaries don't see it that way. They see this as a good thing, not necessarily as a mitzvah that one must do. Nonetheless, we have an idea that astronomy, among all of the other sciences, is the one science that is a mitzvah to engage in, and the rabbis took it seriously. Probably the biggest fan of astronomy in the entire Torah, and the entire Talmud, is Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel loves astronomy. How do I know? He's always talking about it. Rabbi Gamliel, this is a Mishnah in Tractate Rosh Hashanah 2.8. We used to need to know exactly where the moon was at all times. I want to tell you why. 
Every Jewish month could be 29 days long or 30 days long. That depends on whether somebody on the 29th day sees a tiny sliver of moon in the sky signifying the beginning of a new month. Before we had a codified calendar, the only way to know whether the month was going to be 29 days or 30 days was by direct observation. Someone had to catch the moon in the sky. So you can imagine, all the Jews walked outside, they looked up on day 29 and stared until somebody saw a sliver. They would run to Jerusalem and report, we saw a sliver of the moon, they were accepted as testimony, a new month was declared. Not hard to find the moon. Not hard at all. You can imagine what this became after a little while. All of the Jews would walk outside, all of them would look up, and then there was a race to see who could be the first to Jerusalem to tell the courts what was happening. The courts were very worried about this because you know how people can get. If every time you show up, you're person number 6,000 in a line of people talking about the moon, which everybody saw, you're not going to come anymore. They were worried people wouldn't come anymore, so they created a massive party around this, around this entire ritual, around this court case. This party was, in, it was, it was incredible. Maybe, honestly, probably about as good as what we have at the JLI. They would throw this incredible feast. It was in a giant courtyard. Anybody who came got to eat, got to celebrate, got to party. And as the party was going on, the rabbis would sort of sneak in and say, you come over here, you're going to testify about the moon. So it encouraged people to come. This was a major part of Jewish life, is once a month, you would try to find the moon. And even though you knew everybody else found the moon too, you would run down for the big moon party. And hopefully you'd get pulled out to be one of the official witnesses. Now, when they, gave, when they brought the witnesses into the room, they had to make sure those witnesses really knew what they were talking about. What if the witnesses didn't see the moon? What if they saw a reflection or something or a funky cloud? I don't know. Things are in the sky. Aliens. I have no idea. Maybe they, they saw something. How do you make sure they saw the moon? Well, even back then, astronomers were good enough that they could predict where the moon would be in the sky at each time and also what direction it would be in sort of upside down moon or this direction. You've seen weird moons, right? Weird moons. They could predict the weird moons and where exactly they would be. Rabban Gamliel, therefore, would and would, uh, I guess, interrogate, interrogate the witnesses by showing them a lineup of potential moons and saying, which one did you see? This is a mission on your screen. Demus Tsuras Levanis. There were pictures of the moon that Rabbi Gamliel had on a tablet, and it was on the wall of his attic. Shabahen Mares had yet to would show average people, people who didn't know astronomy, these pictures, and he would say, point to the one you saw, and if they pointed to the wrong one, they were bad witnesses. So Rabbi Gamaliel had star charts in his attic that he used in order to analyze witnesses. He was a real astronomy fan. I'll give you another one. This one's in Tractate Erevin on 43b. In Tractate Erevin on 43b, there was a certain ship that arrived by the port just around Shabbos. They didn't know whether they'd made it into port on time, that they would be allowed to leave the boat on Shabbos. The details of this, I do do not have time for, just trust me, that uh, they need to arrive in port by a certain time or, that, or else they're stuck on the boat for the entire Shabbos. They send a messenger to Rabban Gamliel. Did you happen to see when our boat arrived? Rabban Gamliel was much too far from the port to see exactly what time the boat arrived, yet nonetheless Rabban Gamliel announces, I know exactly what time your boat arrived because I saw that you pulled in at just the right moment. The Talmud asks, how did he see? He couldn't see that far. He lived nowhere near the port. The answer given on Erevin 43b is on this screen. He had a tube. Sound familiar? He had a tube and he would look through it and he could see about 2,000 ama, what's that, like 4,000 feet on dry land and by sea. He had a tube that could see 4,000 feet in the distance. What might that have been? Rabbi Gamaliel might have had a telescope. Now, our science historians in the room know that he did not have a telescope. Telescopes would not appear for another thousand years. So first of all, possibility, he had a telescope. <laughs> Rabbis are cool. <laughs> Maybe he had a telescope. Another possibility, that's what Rashi says. Rashi says it was a telescope. Rambam doesn't think it was a telescope. Rambam thinks, I put a picture of it up there. It's called an astrolab. You see that funky metal thing? 
Rambam thinks it was an astrolab. An astrolab is kind of an instrument that you can use to measure angles and inclines from incredible distances. It was the astronomical tool of that time, and that also reflects Rabbi Gamliel's incredible interest in astronomy by the fact that he would have an astrolab. He would have the main tool that astronomers used and used that to reckon distances across long spaces. Another thing to be aware of is that, uh, that glass thing on the screen over there. That's from the British Museum, and it's 3,000 years old, and some people think that what that is is a proto-telescope that the Arabs were using 3,000 years ago. If so, then Rabbi Gamliel totally could have had a tube with one of those in it, but that's kind of up for grabs. We're not sure exactly what that lens is. Point is, the rabbis of the Talmud were engaged in astronomy. They were engaged in the tools of astronomy. Rabbi Gamaliel had something that could, he could do astronomy with. This is something that is very central to what we do as Jews. Which one of those pictures appeals to you is a generational question, you know. <laughs> you figure out exactly how old you are by which alien is your alien. <laughs> The rabbis were not just concerned with the stars staring at them as inanimate objects. The rabbis imagined that the stars might have people on them or might have things on them. The rabbis did not rule out at all that there could be aliens in other worlds. I want to talk about this for a moment because the rabbis weren't the ones who didn't rule it out. God himself did not rule it out. It says in Judges, I got to go back a little and tell you the story there. Devorah was a very cool lady. Devorah, the prophetess Devorah, she was a prophetess, she was a judge, she was a warrior. When Barak, the great general of the time, went to her and said, I'm not worried, maybe we won't succeed in a big battle against Sisra, Devorah said, you're going to be fine, and Barak said back, only if you come with me, and they went into battle together. At the end of the, at the victory, she sings a song. We have several songs that we sing throughout Jewish history, each of these songs at major moments of miracles, at the splitting of the sea, when we got water from a rock, Devorah was one of those big ones. The next one is when Mashiach comes very soon, hopefully before the end of the lecture. Mashiach will come, we'll sing one more song if you've ever seen in the Psalms that one day you will sing a shir chadash, a new song that's the song of Mashiach that we're going to be singing one of those songs is the song of Devorah after they beat Sisra in battle Devorah sang a song of victory, a song of praise to God for the miracles in the battle against Sisera. And in that song she sings, from the heavens they fought, the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Now, that's a song, right? Doesn't mean the stars fought. It's a song. It's lit now, doesn't that be literal? Then she says, curse you, May Rose. Okay, somebody named May Rose is in very big trouble. Curse you, May Rose, said the messenger of the Lord. Curse you bitterly, you inhabitants thereof. Everybody who lives in May Rose is in very big trouble. May Rose did something wrong. Because they came not to the aid of the Lord, to the aid of the Lord against the mighty. May Rose was very, very bad, and it gets called out by name in the song. You don't want to be on Devorah's diss track. But May Rose is on Devorah's diss track. There's a part of the song where she calls out May Rose and says, you guys are rotten, can't stand any of you, especially people who live in May Rose. Where exactly was May Rose? We have a Talmud, Moed Katan, 16a, says that Barak, that's the messenger of the Lord, excommunicated May Rose. He took 400 shofars or 400 shofar blasts and excommunicated May Rose. Who was he? The Talmud says two possibilities. One, a warlord. That one's pretty acceptable. There were a bunch of warlords at the time. They had armies, and these warlords and armies were supposed to come help Devorah and Barak. All of them showed up except for one, May Rose, bit of a jerk. He didn't come. He gets cursed. End of the story. However, the Talmud also says that others say May Rose was a star. Who are the inhabitants of May Rose? From the heaven they fought, from the stars they fought. According to this interpretation, in the war against Sisera, God sent the aliens in too. You can imagine flying saucers. This must have been so cool. You have people fighting with swords on the ground and lasers just boom out of the sky. I, the Torah doesn't say lasers. But you can imagine what this must have looked like. The stars themselves were engaged in the battle. The stars sent their aliens to help out. And the Talmud puts this as a possibility. The point isn't whether this is exactly what happened. The point is, the Talmud doesn't then say, wait a second, I thought there were no aliens. The Talmud's like, of course, the people on Meroz, you know, could have been them. It's, given, it's taken as a given that there could have been warriors on a star. And given that the Talmud sees this as a given, we can say that the rabbis were not at all opposed to, at least in theory, the idea of life on other planets. 
This is a point that the Rebbe made in one of his talks that he gave right after the moon landing. He gave a talk after the moon landing, he mentions this point exactly. So Velvel Green was an astrobiologist over at NASA, and he's the source of many of our letters from the Lubavitcher Rebbe on science because he was involved with the Rebbe, he was close with the Rebbe, and he would write to the Rebbe about his science problems. At one point they put Velvel Green in charge of a project to help find life on Mars, and he went to the Rebbe and he said, am I breaking Torah by trying to find life on Mars? And the Rebbe felt absolutely not. I want to read to you some of what the Rebbe said to him directly, although I hate reading off a piece of paper. I want you to hear the exact words. He said, the Rebbe said, you should look for life on Mars. You should keep looking for life on Mars. If you don't find it, then look somewhere else and don't stop looking. Because to sit here in this world and say there's no life elsewhere is to put a limit on what God can do and nobody gets to do that. So to say that there can't be aliens, antithetical to Jewish thought because there's nothing that can't be. And to look for things, very much in line with Jewish thought. Are there aliens? Not a clue. But I'm sure that I won't say that there aren't, and I'm not sure we won't find them. There is one rule that you should be aware of that the Rebbe does bring down in some of his talks and in some of his letters. The aliens that we find cannot possibly have free will. This is not a major limitation, by the way. Monkeys don't have free will in Jewish law. Monkeys are very intelligent. They could be more intelligent than us, these aliens, but they wouldn't be able to have free will and choose between right and wrong. And the reason why is because everything is in the hands of heaven except for observance of the Torah. Nobody has free will except for the observance of Torah. And we know for a fact that the Torah was given once in one place and never again right here. Since the aliens do not have Torah, everything they do would then be it would be under control of God, just like the animals who act according to their natures and don't make ethical decisions. So we will not find aliens that are capable of ethical decision-making or free will, but we absolutely could find intelligent aliens on other planets, on distant stars, even ones who don't show up when you call them to fight Sisera. Totally possible. The Talmud also doesn't just look at the stars to see who's living there. The Talmud also takes it very seriously that we might be able to tell the future by looking at the stars, or that I might be able to figure out my personality by looking at the stars. The idea of astrology is mentioned in the Talmud with one note. The one major note is that we certainly are not allowed to look at the stars to try to predict the future. This violates a Torah law according to almost all authorities soothsaying involves looking at the stars to predict what will happen. But the Talmud doesn't seem to feel that it didn't work. The Talmud feels it worked, just that people were bad at it. I'll give you the classic example. The classic example of being bad at astrology is that Pharaoh had a whole team of astrologers. They looked at the stars, and they saw that on a certain day, Moses, the savior of the Jewish people, was going to be born, but they had a couple questions. One, they weren't sure if he was going to be an Egyptian or going to be a Jew, and two, they thought he was going to be destroyed by water. Now, in fact, they were right. They were right about everything. He was born to a Jew, but raised by an Egyptian, so the stars showed both, and he would. What would you think Moshe would describe as his own downfall if you were to ask him? Moshe would say his downfall, probably the big moment, was Meimariva, the waters of strife, where he hit the rock instead of speaking to it, and water came out. So it is completely true. It was an Egyptian Jewish baby who would be destroyed by water, but they didn't get that. They said, let's take all the Egyptian babies and all the Jewish babies and try to drown them. That was their plan. So astrology can, it can backfire. Let's just say, let's hope that when you look at your star charts, you don't drown babies. I, I, I hope that that's not the outcome for most people. Nonetheless, the Talmud does recognize that astrology can have some value, that you might be able to predict what kind of a life you're going to have based on what sort of star you were born under. In Shabbos 156a, that's folio 156a, it says people born under the influence of the sun will be radiant personalities, independent people, but they will be very bad at keeping secrets. Hard because the sun, right? And if they try to steal things, they'll always get caught. So it's a bad idea if you're born under the sun to become a thief. Whereas if you were born under the moon, under the sign of the moon, you have the opposite qualities. You're not terribly radiant. People don't like you all that much. Great at stealing stuff. Wonderful at keeping a secret. Saturn has the worst deal of all. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but Saturn, if you're under Saturn, then you probably don't want to know you're under Saturn. Saturn has a real raw deal. If you're born under the sign of Saturn, your plans never work out. People don't respect you. I don't know why Saturn gets a bad rep. It's not great. I hope you're not a Saturn kind of person. 
The Lubavitcher Rebbe, in one of his talks on this topic, explains that when it comes to uh, this, and also when it comes to the quote on the board about eclipses, eclipses, it says in the Talmud that an eclipse is a bad sign for the world because an eclipse God darkens the sky. It's like we all got together for dinner, and a king walks in and says, you made me angry, and takes away the light or turns off the light switch. That's considered a bad sign. Why are eclipses a bad sign? Why does astrology seem to predict the future or what your life is going to be like? The Lubavitcher Rebbe, in one of his most famous talks, and I say most famous talks because, frankly, ask your Chabad rabbi at home, if there are 10 talks from the Rebbe that you absolutely must read that have been translated well into English, the Eclipse talk is definitely one of them. It talks about free will. It talks about science and Torah. It really it grabs a lot of our most interesting ideas and puts them in such a clear way. It's on Chabad.org. Do look it up. Rebbe, Eclipse, you'll find it. It's brilliant. What he says there, to make a very long story and a very long talk short, is that the eclipses and the signs in the heavens can warn us about what we might face as personal challenges, but do not make decisions for us. A person who has a sunny personality is somebody who is going to be naturally radiant, and they're going to have to deal with that. It's pluses and minuses, but they can still be whatever kind of person they want to be. Someone who has a Saturn personality, they're going to have to work around the fact that people don't like them. But it's going to be something that they are dealt. People are dealt certain proclivities, they're dealt certain hands, they have certain biases, certain yetzerharas, evil inclinations. And when we know about them, we can combat them. But these are not this is not determinism. Nothing's chosen for us. It's just that the stars are able to inform us what kind of challenges we might face in our lives. Similarly with an eclipse. An eclipse is a time where we are more likely to do sins. So we have to be very careful not to anger God during that period of time. But we absolutely have the free will to be very good people, as good as we are the rest of the year, during eclipses. It's just a time to be careful. This is how the Hasidic approach understands astrology. Okay, we had enough fun. No more fun. <clears throat> the Talmud is super astronomical, loves astronomy. Ramah Gamaliel had a telescope, aliens. <clears throat> it all lines up. Torah and science, wonderful. I, I, I got to be honest with you. There's a part that's a real problem, and it's the one we opened with. The Torah definitely thinks the Earth's at the center and the sun is moving around it. it it's, a, it's a real issue <laughs> because that's not what most scientists think. Walk outside, ask a scientist, they will not agree. However, we have a line in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is Kahelas. Quick personal story. My grandfather, Ella Vashalem, is my mother's father. He, uh, his, he was raised in a very religious home on the Lower East Side, but then he went off to college and sort of did his own thing. While he was in college, he took a poetry class, and the professor read a line from Ecclesiastes to him, and he started crying. He said it was the most beautiful, he told me this story, most beautiful thing he'd ever heard, Ecclesiastes. He said, where is that from? What, what ancient poetry? What ancient tribe? They told him it's Jewish. He went home to his father, a rabbi, and said, why did you never teach me? You never even mentioned Ecclesiastes. And his father goes, Kahelis? Of course, Kahelis. <laughs> now, this, was not, this is a positive story about my grandfather, because my grandfather would tell me this story often to remind me that some of the most beautiful things in the world are right at home. We just don't have the context all the time and the perspective to realize that, uh, that Ecclesiastes is just as beautiful as Kahelis. Sometimes we block ourselves from the beauty of the world. In any event, I have Ecclesiastes on the board, who is also Kahelis, and uh, he says, Dar heilech dar One generation comes, another generation goes, but the world stands forever. Okay, that could be non-literal, right? Things move, but the world stands still. The sun rises and the sun sets. The world, the sun moves around, the sun flows across the world. Now, that also does not have to be literal. The problem is that the Talmud takes it very literally. If you go into tractate Psachim, 94b runs with this idea and says that we have a firmly geocentric world. Says that with Kohelis means here is to describe the universe. The earth is standing still and the sun is moving around it. This is in Psachim 94b. And this is also in many places in the Talmud. There is a standing assumption that 
that the Earth is at the middle and the Sun is moving around it. You should know that this is not entirely coming out of nowhere. This is Ptolemy, and Ptolemy is based on Aristotle. This was the science of the day. And this wasn't just the science of the day, this was old science already. By the times of the Talmud, geocentrism had been the science that was established for 500 years, longer than our science today has been established. We know Copernicus only for the past 500 years or so. By the time Rambam would have written about it, this would have been established science for something like 1,500 years. So this was not guesses, this was not superstition, they were doing math, and the math worked. Anybody who knows a little bit of physics will tell you that the geocentric model, you can do the math the same way you can, not the same way, but you can do geocentric math and heliocentric math and come to the same conclusions because of how coordinates work. You can set up a graph just about anywhere in the sky and you can make the math work, it's harder. Geocentric math doesn't work as well. You gotta really jump through a lot of hoops and make a lot of assumptions and put up a bunch of things that you wouldn't necessarily want in your math, but the math works more or less, as well as it does in heliocentrism. This was science, this was not religion. The science of the day used geocentrism effectively to prove different things about what was going on in the sky. And this was certainly the science of the time, certainly the science of Rambam's era. This was, a, this was not a conflict between science and Torah 1,500 years ago. It, uh, it became a problem. <laughs> it became a problem once Copernicus said, no, that's dead wrong, right? Once Copernicus decided that the sun's in the middle and Galileo paid the price for it, we from then on have held as a very serious scientific principle that the sun is in the middle, the heliocentric model is correct, and geocentrism is considered outdated, old, and wrong. Rambam does not care. Now, Rambam is before that decision, but Rambam doesn't care. In Yesedia Terra 3, he describes how all of the spheres surrounding the world are these circular spheres. He has nine levels of it. The nine levels, each one has a planet in them. He says that there's a stationary Earth in the middle. You have the moon in one sphere, Mercury, a sphere above, and then Venus, and then the sun, then Mars, then Jupiter, then Saturn, then one that has all the stars. That one's a crowded sphere. And then above that, you have a sphere that just kind of moves everything, sort of the spinny sphere, and that this is the way that God made the universe, and this just does not line up with our modern understanding of astronomy. And this is a, this is a real problem. So, aliens aside and all of that other nice stuff aside, this is what we're really here to talk about. We're really here to talk about the geocentric problem. I know that's exactly what I say, what, uh, 40, minutes into the, 40 minutes into the lecture. Now we're talking. <laughs> geocentrism. There are a couple possibilities. If you've been to these lectures so far, part of this series, you know we have four approaches to every Torah and science question. One of these approaches on the screen, I crossed off because I wrote it and then I hated myself for writing it. I don't even like that it's on the screen, but I couldn't not put it there. So I put a line through it to signify my distaste. I do not like this one at all. The other ones, open, open for discussion. This first one, not. Let's rule out the one that is definitely wrong. That is, Rambam is wrong. He's dealing with the science of his day. He couldn't have known any better. You ignore the first couple chapters of Rambam and you will be a good Jew. This is a disgusting point of view. Unfortunately, it is one that is held by a lot of religious Jews and I don't understand it. The reason why I really don't understand this point of view is because later on in the Rambam, there are going to be certain words the Rambam uses, synonyms, where he could choose one word and then chooses a completely different word. And on that synonym, we derive laws that have to do with life and death matters. We take the Rambam so seriously that we look at a word the Rambam uses and are willing to decide capital decisions, life and death matters, on the Rambam's word choice. To say that the first couple chapters were just wrong really cast doubt on the whole book. And that's not something Judaism is willing to accept at all. There's no doubt that the Rambam is Torah. There's no doubt that you can make a bracha, birchas Torah, the bracha on the Torah, and simply learn the sections of Rambam that pertain to science. This is Torah. The Rambam is not wrong. That is an unacceptable position. So I, I crossed it right out. But let's talk about the ones that are acceptable, okay? Acceptable positions. We have four approaches. Remember what they are? We can twist Torah, yeah? We can twist Torah. Torah is twistable. We'll twist it into a ball to make it fit my science. Why don't we usually like that? 
We usually don't like it because it assumes that science must be right and that Torah has to catch up, and science does not itself assume that it must be right. Science assumes that it could be right, should be right, probably is right. But we are always asking, when we try to twist Torah to fit science, we are always asking from a possibility on a certainty. The Torah is certain, science is a possibility. It's not great, but it can be done. So twisting Torah is, on, is, is possible. Twisting science. Maybe the science is wrong. We're allowed to twist science into a ball. I don't love that either because I respect science and because we use science in Torah and take it very seriously. But it can be done. Twist science into a ball to make it fit the Torah. The third approach, use Kabbalah to blast away the problem. No, but science doesn't mean science. Torah doesn't mean Torah. Kabbalah is Kabbalah. Everything works. And approach number four is an approach where the Torah is right and science is right. And when we know exactly what Torah is supposed to be doing and what science is supposed to be doing, we don't see conflicts anymore. We're going to talk about all four approaches and that will be our lecture for the day. First possibility is that science is just wrong. Let's twist science into a ball. The Torah is the blueprint of the world. The Torah is a certainty. A brave Jew is able to say this and a brave Jew will not get, will not get pushback from this. If you are brave enough, you can walk out there into the world and say, I believe the Torah literally and I don't really care what science says. Now, you can't say that about medicine. That would be very dangerous. People would die if you said that about medicine. But there is no real ethical prerogative that we must believe what's at the center of the solar system. You can be a good person who is wrong about the solar system. It doesn't affect your daily life. It doesn't affect medicine. It might affect your reputation among astronomers. But other than that, it doesn't really affect your life in a meaningful way. So it is totally acceptable and totally ethical to simply say, I'm putting on blinders. I don't see the science. I only see the Torah. If you can live that life and you can live it productively and put on tefillin and light Shabbos candles and do your job as a Jew with that, that's the answer and you can leave. Because frankly, that is a perfect answer. A Jew does not have any obligation to deal with the science. However, many of us engage with science regularly, and this would be deeply troubling to us as an approach, self-included. So it's not my approach either. However, it is an approach that you should keep in mind. It is my overall approach. That is, at the end of the day, if I really can't solve the problem, I'm going to pick Torah every single time. But if I can solve it, I'd much rather see it solved. Why don't we twist the Torah a little bit? That was twisting science. Let's twist the Torah. This one's not much of a Torah twist. This one's a fair Torah twist. This is the position that my father is personally, personally partial to. My father is a physician. He's not an astronomer, but he likes this one. I've seen it in writing. This is a valid approach, and that is that the Torah is not speaking to people who are going to be intergalactic travelers. Mashiach's coming before the end of this talk. We're never really leaving. We're never getting much further than the moon. This is about it. Maybe we will, but I'm saying the Torah is written primarily for people who are living on planet Earth. And since the Torah is describing what it's like on planet Earth, the Torah is going to describe an earthling's perspective. So from an earthling's perspective, the earth stands still and the sky moves around us. The Torah's job is not to teach me science. The Torah's job is to teach me what I will see, to teach me the observations of this world and how to relate that to Judaism. And a person living on earth simply will never see a world that is heliocentric. They will only see a world that is geocentric. Valid approach. We twist the Torah, though. We, we do. It does require a twist. We understand the Torah to be infinite. We understand the Torah to transcend all time and space. It should describe all conditions. But fact is, it doesn't. The Torah doesn't have every, everything in it very obviously. And it could be that the simplest understanding here is that the Torah is talking to people who stand on planet Earth. There's a fourth approach, and this is the Kabbalah approach, where we blast away the whole problem. Rambam was a secret Kabbalist, which is something I absolutely do believe. Rambam knew quite a good deal of Kabbalah. Anybody who knows both Kabbalah and Rambam will verify that. The only people who disagree are missing something in their Rambam or missing something in their Kabbalah. But if you know both, he's a clear Kabbalist. There's no such, there's no such valid position otherwise. Rambam knew Kabbalah. It could be that Rambam was trying to describe a Kabbalistic truth and clothed it in the science of his day in order to make it palatable, but that he was really telling me something that has nothing to do with the movement of the stars and the planets, something in Kabbalah. This is acceptable. This has been, posed, this has been proposed by some very smart people, some very holy people, and it is an approach that you can take. None of them are my approach. Except maybe the Torah blueprint one. You guys know me by now. I'm a bit of a zealot. But uh, most of these are not really my approaches. 
I want to go back to our letter. Remember the story at the beginning, the cliffhanger? This guy writes to the Rebbe, says, I am going to keep Taras Mishbacha, Shabbos, family purity, Shabbos, and put on tefillin every day, and encourage my friends to do it too, if your rabbi will put in writing that he thinks the earth is at the center of the solar system. But I know that he would never do such a thing. He gave two reasons why the Rebbe would never do such a thing. Let me read off the reasons, because they're so insulting that I have to share it with you. Reason number one, he says, the Rebbe does not wish to be labeled as a fool. Reason number two, he himself is not as foolish as some of his ardent but hypnotized followers are. Just a double whammy, this guy. This guy was a piece of work. <laughs> the Rebbe receives this letter. What do you think the Rebbe writes back? It is my firm belief that the sun revolves around earth. <laughs> well, there you have it. No point, of, no point for discussing this with the Rebbe. The Rebbe is not going to be twisting anything. The Rebbe has a simple statement. It is my firm belief that the sun revolves around the earth. That's it. Helio, that, excuse me. Geocentrism, not heliocentrism. Furthermore, I've declared this publicly on many occasions. I've told professors about this. I tell everybody. You want to let people know? Let them know. I'm out there in the public. I'm a public person. Tell the world. So for those of you who are clutching your pearls in the back, how dare I give this talk? The Rebbe in a letter says, tell everybody, and I'm just listening to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I'm telling you. <laughs> He said, I've told everybody, it's public knowledge. I think the earth is at the center and the sun moves around it. And notice, the Rebbe is afraid of nothing, and you don't have to be either. There's no fear here. This is a proud Jew. I know what I know, I believe what I believe, and I'm afraid of nobody. I've told the scientists, I've made it public, come after me. He says, furthermore, the Rebbe then spins it back. He says, if you believe heliocentrism is right, that the sun's at the center, that shows a person is ignorant of the conclusions of modern science or has not advanced beyond the science of Ptolemy and Copernicus. Modern science doesn't agree with you. Modern science allows heliocentrism, as we're about to explain. But the Rebbe tells this guy, oh, you think that I'm backward? You're backward. You're 50 years behind modern science. Catch up, guy. Look at that PS, my favorite part of the whole letter. It's surely unnecessary to add, though I'm adding it for the record, the Rebbe says, that I take for granted that you're going to keep your commitments in this wager regarding the practical aspects of your letter. I expect to see Shabbos, Tefillin, and family purity. It was your deal. <laughs> How's the Rebbe do it? The Rebbe explains in that same letter that what we now know, because of Einstein, is that there's two kinds of relativity, general and special relativity. The Rebbe focuses exclusively on special relativity in these discussions, although in his letters he simply calls it relativity. This is, by the way, not a form of ignorance, God forbid, on the Rebbe's behalf. If you look at any of the letters at that time, including the work that I'm about to quote from Reichenbach, they very frequently use relativity as a shorthand for either one. So the Rebbe says relativity, he means special relativity. That's clear from the context. So given special relativity, we have a rule. I'm going to oversummarize the rule and then try to explain it a little, but this is not a science lecture. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time teaching relativity. I also don't know it all that well. So we're going to work on this together, but I know it well enough to explain it. That's, a, that's my job, to know things well enough to explain them. When we have two bodies in space and they're in motion relative to each other, it is equally valid to say that one body is moving around another body. This is a rule of relativity because Newton believed in absolute motion, that motion was an absolute thing, not a relative thing, and Einstein demonstrated that motion is a relative thing. My dear friend back in Pomona, Dr. Polterak, he's at quantumtorah.com, I believe. He has wonderful essays on this topic. I sat with him and said, I need you to explain this to me in words that I can say in a lecture because I can do the math on the screen, but they're, they're not going to like it. <laughs> and he gave me an example that I'd like to use that I think resonates for most audiences. It's an oversimplification intentionally, but it's a good way to picture relativity. Imagine two boats at sea. Imagine a completely calm sea, a completely dark sea. No stars, no moon. I don't know, it's a cloudy day, it's a storm, but a storm where there's no water moving. Okay, so it's a weird hypothetical. Welcome to physics. An ideal boat. Imagine an ideal boat. Two boats at sea. I'm on one boat, and you're on the other boat. I see you moving toward me. I have no way to tell if I'm moving. I can't feel the rocking of the boat. I can't feel the waves. All I can see is your boat moving toward me. And from your boat, all you see is my boat moving toward you. 
There is no mathematical way without a third reference point, without some outside point to determine who's right. There's no way to know, because all motion is relative. If I have a third reference point, if I have a third thing I can look at, if somebody can look at the water, or I have somebody outside who can watch the boats from a third perspective, I can tell what's moving. But as long as I am on one of those boats, I have no way to tell what is moving relative to what. As long as I am on the planet Earth or around the planet Earth, I have no way of telling whether the Earth is going around the sun or the sun is going around the Earth. That is, a, that is an outcome of special relativity. And that's newish science, right? That's in the time of Einstein. What does that mean about heliocentrism and geocentrism? It means, in theory at least, that neither approach is necessarily scientifically backed. Now, be careful, because a lot of rabbis also make this very subtle mistake. The Rebbe is not saying that he's adopting relativity. The Rebbe is not saying that it could be either model. Don't forget. It's the Rebbe's firm belief that the sun revolves around the earth. The Rebbe is not saying both are possibilities. The Rebbe has one position, and it is Rambam's position, and that is true. However, if you will say that science disagrees, you're backward. Science does not disagree anymore. Science says maybe. Science says, yeah, if you want. Possibly. Impossible to know. Science has no objection, but we have a position. So the Rebbe's position is geocentrism, and the Rebbe's science is, you can't disprove me using science. It is beyond the realm of how far science can reach in modern scientific thought to tell me geocentrism is wrong. This is a fourth approach. Why is this the fourth approach? Because we are not sacrificing a word of the Torah, nor are we sacrificing a word of science. Science has stated, I cannot tell you for sure what's moving. And the Torah says, I can tell you for sure what the scheme is. We have no argument. Science is not disagreeing with Torah, because science from Einstein onward said that it could never be determined. No matter how many trials you run, you will never determine what is going around what. So science isn't part of the discussion anymore. Science says, this is now an article of faith. Well, that's where we come in. We're faith people. We know God told us what's happening. That's the answer. That's the fourth approach. Now, the Rebbe is a good enough source for me. I trust him with everything. But you don't have to, yet. So I want to show you, this is a brilliant scientist on the screen. This is Hans Reichenbach. Hans Reichenbach has been described as perhaps the greatest empiricist of the 20th century. That's not something they give out to everybody. They haven't called me that yet for my century. <laughs> Reichenbach, he studied civil engineering and physics, mathematics, and philosophy at various universities, including Berlin. He was a student of Max Planck, you know, from the constant. Max Planck, he was Max Planck's student. He attended Einstein's lectures while working as a physicist. And then Einstein and Planck got together and petitioned the University of Berlin to hire him to be a staffer at the university. So this is not just a fly-by-night. This is an incredible empiricist, an incredible physicist, an incredible philosopher philosopher, someone who really understood Einstein's work and worked with him directly, somebody who understood Planck's work and worked with him directly, and someone whom Planck and Einstein respected enough to hire at the University of Berlin. Look what he writes about the theory of relativity. This is a translation from the German, so you'll have to trust me, and I have to trust the translator, but this is what we have in front of us. This is what he wrote. I underlined some parts. He says, because of relativity, it is meaningless to speak of a difference in truth claims of the theories of Copernicus and Ptolemy. The two concepts are equivalent descriptions. That's the greatest empiricist of the century that is a student of Einstein and Planck who taught at the university and was brought on by him, explicitly saying exactly what the Rebbe says in his letter, that once you have relativity, it is silly to talk about whether there is a heliocentric or geocentric model in science. Science no longer has an opinion on the matter. It had an opinion on the matter in the time of Ptolemy. It had an opinion on the matter in the time of Copernicus. But we have now advanced to the point where science no longer has an opinion on the matter of geocentrism or heliocentrism. Incredible. Hans Reichenbach himself making this exact claim. The theory of relativity does not say that the concept of Ptolemy is correct. Rather, it contests the absolute significance of either theory. It's not defending geocentrism. It's not defending heliocentrism. It's saying that science is taking a big step away starting from relativity. So when you do go out into the lobby and you talk to a scientist and you tell them that you think that the geocentric model is correct and they say you're out of your mind, heliocentrism, the correct response is, you are out of your mind, relativity. I'll see your heliocentrism and I'll raise your relativity. I do want to sum up everything that we've said, put it in one big summary, and then we can talk. 
And the large summary is that we have four approaches to every science and Torah problem, and we can apply them here too. We can twist Torah, we can twist science. We can use Kabbalah, or we can look at science properly and look at Torah properly, and because science is the evidence of what the Torah tells us the world is, they should line up unless somebody has made a terrible mistake somewhere. The first approach of twisting Torah in this regard was saying that the Torah is not specifically describing the absolute state of things, simply describing what an earthling would see looking up. It's a bit of a twist, but not a bad one. If you like it, take it, run with it, be a Jew. There is the twisting of the science. We can say that the science doesn't necessarily mean that, that the science doesn't mean that heliocentrism is right. If you're comfortable twisting science and you're comfortable trusting the Torah, once again, take it and run with it. We have the Kabbalistic approach. The Kabbalistic approach being that perhaps when the Torah describes geocentrism, it's describing a world that reflects a Kabbalistic truth, not a physical truth. Once again, if this helps you put on tefillin and light Shabbos candles, please take it. However, I believe the approach that has the most fidelity and certainly the one that is easiest to defend is first and foremost, we trust the Torah over, over everything else, and science does not disagree with the Torah because on this issue, post-relativity, science does not have a comment on the question. Science has nothing to say anymore about the question of what is moving around what in the sky, and since science has stepped aside, the Torah is free to take that space and you're free to do it guilt-free. The question was, don't we have a third reference point? The whole idea of relativity is that if there's no third reference point, nothing outside of the system looking in, then I can't figure out what's moving relative to what. But we have third reference points. We have things outside of the solar system. Not exactly a planet, because that would still be in the, uh, in, the, in the reference area. You'd have to have something that's sort of distant from both. But in theory, I could stand on some other planet or some other star, and I'd be able to tell what's moving around what. And I guess the, answer that I, the best answer I can give you is we don't actually have that capability right now. We don't have anything that is entirely outside of the system. I have other answers, and that is that uh, if you're familiar with uh, Rindler coordinates, there's a, look that up, Google Rindler coordinates. There's an answer you can use that involves a little bit of physics, but it's so far beyond the scope of what I have time to discuss right now. Um, this has to do with whether you can use non-inertial frames or inertial frames with relativity in the first place. This has to do with whether, uh, whether the rule of general relativity can be applied. Some of those rules, like non-inertial frames, can be applied to special relativity. These are subtle points, and uh, unfortunately a bit beyond the scope of our discussion right now. Um, if you were to go to that website that I suggested earlier, quantumtorah.com, Dr. Poltrak deals with these issues at length, if you really want to read some good stuff on this. Uh, I don't, uh, I, don't, I agree with, I, I think some of his conclusions are brilliant. Some of them he and I have to discuss further before I'm fully on board. However, he does, he's a brilliant physicist who has a lot of good ideas on this topic, so I, I would check out his website. This gentleman wanted to know whether the Torah has anything to say about the possibility of the sun running out of fuel, of the sun exploding, of the ultimate end to the sun. The reason why I don't necessarily think it does is because the sun is supposed to run out of fuel on a time scale that we are never going to see. Mashiach is supposed to come very, very soon. So the question of what might happen in, uh, in hundreds of millions of years to the sun is somewhat irrelevant. It does, therefore, the science telling us that if the world was left in steady state for hundreds of thousands of years, the sun would run out can be totally accurate because that is what might happen if the world was allowed to run that long. But uh, God will be messing with the world far before then, so I'm not sure the Torah has any problem, per se, with this idea. I think it can work. I would take the fourth approach. The Torah, in this case, has no comment. Understand, the fourth approach is that if you look carefully, you'll find that either the Torah or science has no comment on the debate. I don't believe the Torah cares if this is the case, and therefore science is allowed to run. So does the Torah say anything about colonizing Mars, about traveling to distant planets? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. We have the reference from a rose that we discussed earlier, the possibility that there are inhabitants of distant planets. We also, I should note, very important, some people were very confused. They wrote to the Rebbe in some early letters saying, uh, we've reached the moon, we're traveling into space. Doesn't it say in the Torah that we can't reach heaven in our time? The Rebbe explained, and this is 
This really didn't require the Rebbe's explanation. This is so obvious from the Torah that when the Torah says the world, the world is not planet Earth. The world is the physical universe. And heaven is the spiritual universe, which means that the world does not end at the borders of our atmosphere. The world doesn't stop at the stratosphere. When the God says aretz, when the, world, when the word world is used, this extends to all of the planets, to the entire galaxy and far beyond. So if one day we do colonize those distant galaxies, that will also be eretz. That will also be land. Now, it absolutely doesn't negate the possibility. There is considerable discussion in Jewish law whether and how we would keep Torah in space, given that a lot of Torah is based on the revolution of the sun, right? A lot of, when do you keep Shabbos on Mars? These are fascinating questions. Rabbi Konikov, who is in uh, Orlando, had to answer these questions for Ilan Ramon of Blessed Memory. When he went up into space, he died on re-entry, but one of his statements before he went up was that as long as he was representing the whole Jewish people in space, representing Israel, he wanted to keep Torah and mitzvahs in space for the whole world to see, which really is a, a powerful lesson from a powerful person. And so he asked questions to find out how exactly, do you have to keep Shabbos every 20 minutes? <laughs> do you have to put on tefillin? in every five minutes. <laughs> and the answer that he was given that seems to be the consensus of the rabbis is that you would keep Shabbos and you would keep time as though, from, as though it is the place you left. So you would consider, basically, you just set your watch to Florida time where they took off, and it's always Florida time, including on Shabbos. However, as more and more people begin traveling beyond the stars, I expect this will be an area of considerable rabbinic inquiry, and I, it's a field you should get into now, right? Get in on the ground. You want to know what rabbis are going to be answering in the next five to ten years? They're going to be answering questions like that. This is the future of rabbinic questions, and I love it. So what's gravity have to say about all of this? I'm going uh, to, thank you, five minutes left. I'm going to uh, elaborate on the question a little bit for those who didn't catch why it's a good question because it's a very good question. The question is that I know how gravity works, right? A bigger thing is going to pull a smaller thing around it. So I don't really need a third reference point, or if you want to say it another way, I have one and it's called gravity. That is, I don't need to know objectively, it's true, that I can't be sure what's moving around what, but I also know how gravity works and the smaller thing, which is Earth, is going to move around the sun because the point of gravitation between the two given their distances, is going to be right in the middle of the sun. So the Earth is going to move around that center point. That's your question, I assume, correct? Yeah, I, you're welcome. <laughs> I wish I'd said I just don't understand, but <laughs> it's a very good question. <clears throat> there are a couple answers. I want to give just one right now, and if you want to meet me afterwards, I'll tell you some other ones. The first answer is that Ptolemy was well aware of gravity, and so was all of science prior to Copernicus. Gravity is older than Copernican science. So they had to deal with this too. How do you have a geocentric model when you believe that the sun is bigger than Earth, which they always did? They always thought the sun was bigger, and they always understood how gravity worked. And what they did was they created a scheme where since Earth is attached to all of space, it's going to drag all of space with it as the sun moves around it. So all of space is dragged behind the Earth. This is an ancient model. You can find it on Wikipedia. They'll describe a scheme where Earth kind of pulls space like a curtain behind it and therefore has more gravity to it because it's part of that process. This is how the ancients did it. I do not know if this is an objective truth. I do not know if this is a Torah truth at all. But I am telling you that there is a way to reconcile geocentrism with the existence of gravity simply because everybody who was a geocentrist prior to the 1600s was well aware of gravity and dealt with these problems. I don't know how we would deal with it now. I have to think about it. Very good question. Thank you all very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.